Welcome to the Unscientific Method podcast, where we unpack the research and lives of young scientists doing amazing things around us at the University of British Columbia and Simon Fraser University. My name is Sarah, and for today's episode, get ready to pull out that grade 11 textbook, because we're here with Nicola Mulberry, a PhD student in applied mathematics at Simon Fraser University. So Nicola is a PhD student in applied mathematics program at SFU. Her interests are in mathematical modeling and computing with applications to public health. Early in the pandemic, Nicola worked with a group of researchers at the BC Center of Disease Control to model COVID-19 transmission in BC and to help inform the provincial public health response to the pandemic. She changed her focus for her current project and is currently interested in the evolution of co-circulating pathogens. Nicola is also involved in an ongoing project to develop and promote open educational resources for undergraduate math students. Okay, Nicola, tell us about your research. Sure. So I've been doing research for about five years now, all in the field of math modeling and infectious disease modeling in particular. And yeah, right now I'm currently interested in a particular pathogen called the pneumococcus, which is a significant human pathogen. It's a bacteria that's actually super common. It usually lives in people's noses, but it usually doesn't really cause any issues. Sometimes though, especially in children, it can actually lead to pretty severe disease. So it's actually a, a leading cause of pneumonia meningitis globally. So it's a, a significant human pathogen. And why I got interested in this particular bacteria is because of certain patterns of diversity that we see that I found really intriguing from a modeling perspective. So just to give more background, there's a lot of different, we can call them strains of this particular pathogen. For example, we have drug resistant strains and drug sensitive strains. And the interesting thing is both of these types coexist stably. They seem to have been maintained at intermediate frequencies for about the past 30, 40 years or so. So that's one interesting pattern globally. So it's both within our particular country and and globally, we see this pattern of stable coexistence. Yeah. So even under different treatment rates, so like treatment rates vary pretty significantly from country to country, but pretty much everywhere we do see both these types coexisting. So we never see, to my knowledge, resistance overtaking sensitivity, like we have seen in, in certain other bacterial populations. Along with treatment, we can also use vaccination as one of the other public health interventions that's used against this particular pathogen. Vaccination only targets a certain subset of the circulating strains. And what's interesting is that while vaccination has been successful at targeting those specific strains and reducing disease, we do see carriage kind of coming back and being overall pretty stable. So these vaccine type strains are being replaced and they're being replaced pretty quickly, kind of within a few years. It's interesting from a modeling perspective to see if we can understand within species competition and how it's leading to this replacement post-vaccine strategy. So that's kind of some of the reasons why I've been interested in this particular pathogen lately. So you're kind of the intersection of like ecology on the tiniest scale and math. Yeah. So, so we're trying to like understand the ecology at say kind of the within host scale. So if I have kind of two, two different strains living in my nose, like how are they interacting? And then on the between host scale, when you transmit them, like how do all of those factors come together to produce the patterns that we observe on the population scale? 
that's sick. A little war zone in your in your nose at every moment in time. You didn't even know it. What is your the current method of research? Like other people in the world, what's the current dogma or thought around this? There has been a lot of more general work in this direction. What's novel about this work is really focusing on the two different scales that are in play, like the between host and the within host scale and linking those two scales. And we're also interested in kind of integrating different data sources. So utilizing novel sequencing technologies in our model, like how can we take advantage of all of the diversity that we can see so we don't just have sensitivity and resistance, but we have kind of subtypes within that, that, that we can actually try to understand. So tell us how you got here. Tell me about your research career and like your studies and everything. I started research during my master's at also at Simon Fraser. I was involved in a study that looked at HIV transmission among female sex workers and their clients in South Africa. And in particular, we were interested in optimal intervention strategies for HIV. Yeah. And then from there, I started my PhD still at Simon Fraser. (laughs) And that's when I first got introduced to the pneumococcus and this kind of pattern of coexistence and, and how can we model that. And then I think that's about when the pandemic started, about a month or two maybe prior to the pandemic really starting here in BC, I, I got um, roped into to working with the BC CDC. And I was really excited to get some hands-on experience working with a public health agency, kind of understanding how they operate, what they need. And the work itself was a lot of just quick and careful development of models for BC specifically, we developed, or I was involved with developing one of the main forecasting models that the, that the province was using for a long time. Towards the end of that, <laughs> I worked there. I was involved with a project that looked at optimal vaccine strategies. And then I think that was one of the last projects I did with that team before deciding that I wanted to come back and continue with previous research. Along the way, I was involved in a few other different projects. Um, I was involved in the project developing open educational resources for first-year Calc students at SFU, um, which was a really rewarding project, and I was glad to be involved in that. Yeah, I had this kind of random side project with Leah Cachette at UBC on cellular biology modeling, and that was fun. Yeah, now I'm kind of back to trying to pick up where I was in my first year of my PhD after taking all those little side detours. Just for um, context, there was a huge number of grants put out when the pandemic started for UBC and SFU laboratories. And so many students got pulled off their initial project in Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or whatever you happen to work on. And they were put onto this pandemic stuff, which was really exciting for the students initially. But the thing was that while it was an incredible opportunity, and it seems like you really contributed a lot For a lot of people in biochemistry or immunology or things like this, it was almost too quick of a turnaround to really contribute because we weren't made necessarily to study these viruses. These labs were really trying to overall. So Nicola is not um, the only one unique where she really probably spent hours. I know people that, you know, didn't take Christmas and I'm sure it was a lot of pressure to try and work on COVID-19. So it's pretty interesting. Like you hear, you know, researchers are working on this. It really, it really is these students also just at UBC and SF putting in all that time. 
So that's really cool. And yeah, just to echo what you said, it was at first kind of an exciting opportunity. It definitely was a lot though. It was a lot for me to handle. And after, I think I, in total, I was involved for about a year and a half and definitely towards the tail end, especially it, <laughs> That's what it got to be like. a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, initially it was interesting learning again, like how to work with a public health agency. I didn't find it was always helpful for my PhD per se, because just a lot of the tools we were using, we were just trying to use developed tools in a quick, efficient, careful way, but it wasn't necessarily kind of developing new techniques or models per se. No, you're, you're doing what you can. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's amazing. That, that was a little bit about your path. It seems like Nicola right now is living a little bit further away in a very cool and interesting city called Squamish. And we love that because that means she's kind of an adventurous person. So tell me, are you mostly working solo? Do you like working collaboratively? What's your favorite part of this work? I'd say definitely the work I was doing on COVID was very collaborative. And that was a lot due to the fact that we needed to um, get things out quickly. And so it just made sense to, to have one person work on this and one person work on that. And then we all kind of come together, which was a bit new for me because usually, or previously the, the research I had been doing was pretty individual. And now that I'm working again on my own thing, it's for the most part, it, it is individual, but there, there are still interesting collaborations that pop up. They're not necessarily day to day, everyone working together, but it is interesting sometimes even just to hear from the person who, for example, collected your data. Recently, I've been involved. I'm not the lead on this project, but I was helping out with a, a project to estimate serial intervals for SARS-CoV-2 using data collected in Melbourne, Australia, where they had really careful contact tracing and a really good, really good data, basically. And, and we got to discussed with the people who actually collected this data, the contact tracers themselves, we got to discuss with them about the data. Like, oh, this, this one looks a bit weird. And they'd be like, oh yeah, that was from that flight from this. And it was really interesting to hear because that's not a perspective you usually get. Right. It's like, oh, it, it thought the sample thought a little bit and you're like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, don't use that one. Actually. I know it's in there, but don't use it. And in this current project, are you like, how much can your supervisor help you? Are they a mathematics supervisor? Are they a bacteriologist or what are they? As I'm a student in the math department, both I have two supervisors and they're both mathematicians are both in the math department also. But again, they are both on the modeling side, on the public health side, infectious disease side of things. For sure, like I get a lot of expertise from them about modeling, like how to formulate a useful model, if that makes sense. A lot of times it's not super hard to just create a model, but it doesn't always tell you what you want to know or tell you anything interesting. So definitely I get a lot of guidance from that. You know, I end up reading a lot of papers basically in the biology, ecology side. I'm not doing research per se in that area, but I do have to have an idea of the current status of those fields as it pertains to my project. I don't need the breadth of knowledge there, <laughs> thankfully. You know, there have been a few times where my supervisors have put me in contact with someone who's more knowledgeable in those fields. And those have been useful for me, especially in developing a model. I can definitely appreciate this idea. For me, it's really hard to tell what, when you say developing a model, like what that is. Similarly, I work on genetic sequencing 
And before I started it, I was like, what do you actually do? You sequence it and then you look at the results, right? Like how hard can it be? And it's, it kind of sounds almost that simple with modeling. Like yeah, you sequence it and then you model it and that's it. And you're like, well, I'm spending five years of my life. So it's not that easy. <laughs> so I, I can imagine actually a lot of, there's a lot of modeling for the tools that are used for the DNA sequencing as well. So yeah, for sure. Maybe we'll end up in the same field someday. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, I have, I have some experience with bioinformatics analysis and it's a lot. There's so many steps that go into the data you get and it's like, well, well, what, what happened there? (laughs) (laughs) I want to ask you about a typical day in your work field, but I'm worried you're just going to say I model things and then I go get breakfast and then I model some more things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I guess it depends on what stage of the project I'm in. So if I'm starting from a point where I have data, which is not uncommon, you know, there's a stage where I'm doing a lot of data analysis to figure out what are the important features of the data? Uh, What are the important characteristics? Like what are the interesting patterns? Yeah. Sometimes that can be super quick. Maybe I do that in a day, or maybe it takes a few months. Like for the, this latest project that took me, it was a fairly lengthy analysis to actually just look at what data I had and understand the patterns there and how I can use that and kind of get an idea of what I want to put into my model and what I want to get out of my model. And then from there, you want to try to find a, a framework that makes sense within for what you, again, what you want to ask. You know, there's always the temptation with modeling to put in as much detail as possible because there's an idea that that will make it more realistic. But sometimes that's kind of hiding the real signal that you have that's driving your um, dynamics. So you really want to focus on a few key dynamics and see how they work together to to produce your final result, which sounds easy, but it, it can be hard to draw that line sometimes. No, I think that's a huge thing, right? Is sometimes, I mean, you just said it yourself. Sometimes if you use too many data points, it's only perfect for that specific set of data points. Yeah, exactly. You're like, I kind of wanted to use this in the real world too. So yeah, that that actually would be really difficult, I think. Yeah, a lot of my day-to-day work is is at the computer. You know, I have I have a model now that I've implemented. And so, you know, I can run some experiments to make sure that things look reasonable, do a lot of simulations sometimes. What sort of journals does this data go into? There's kind of a lot of computational biology papers. So sometimes the work fits in there. There's papers that are more tailored towards modeling specifically and infectious disease modeling. I guess it depends if what you're getting out of your model. Is it an interesting result that people in who study pneumo from more of an ecology field, are they going to be interested in your result? Or is it more of a novel modeling framework that modelers will be interested in? Is it a new analytical tool that either of those people might be interested in? Um, yeah, so it's, there's kind of different places you can go depending on how your project kind of pans out. So what is one cool or interesting technique or result that you like come up and you're like, that was really exciting? This is kind of a random example that has nothing to do with infectious disease, but I, I think it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's an example where the the actual parameters of the model are of interest. So it's called the earthquake location problem. Have you heard of this? No, but it sounds so cool. It, it's that it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's like okay, we we see an earthquake, and you know you have sensors scattered across the globe, 
but I mean, probably you don't have a sensor directly over the source of the earthquake, right? And even if you did, you would be interested in how deep it, the source is. Um, so the idea is that physicists have well-established models for how seismic waves propagate on the surface of the earth and through the earth. And so the idea is to use this model and the sensor data that you have, so you, you fit your model to your sensor data to try to find the original source location of the earthquake. So you have depth and, and, like, and latitude, longitude. So yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting where it's not always, so we're not trying to forecast anything. We're not trying to predict earthquakes with this model. What you're trying to do is understand more about the data that you did see. That's really cool, actually. I didn't know about this at all. So this is like a common knowledge thing. Oh, I don't know about common knowledge. Probably yeah, I know. Most, uh, geologists common, and geophysicists yes. are, yeah, pretty common in, in those fields. But. <laughs> so what are some of the challenges of your research? So I think for me personally, it's hard to sometimes get swept up with a lot of simulations. <laughs> and I find that quite boring. As you can imagine, which I, I guess it's the same in experimental fields, you know, actually doing the grind work of the experiments is not always interesting. I guess you're working with your hands in wet labs, though. So. That's true. Maybe yeah. a bit better. But so you have to run these for a long time, eh? The simul simulation? Yeah, so it, it really kind of depends for the work I'm doing now. Um, it is more simulation heavy. There's not a lot of analysis I can do beforehand with the modeling framework that I have, unfortunately. I do, that is something that I kind of prefer in a model is to be able to do more analysis without relying on a lot of, a lot of simulations. So that, that's one challenge I'm kind of facing now is kind of getting through that boring piece that's lengthy and yeah, time intensive and everyone in science is, is like, it's like doing the menial tasks to get to what you want. Exactly. What do you hope to achieve from this project particularly? So I hope to be able to develop a model that can replicate those kind of key patterns that I explained in, in the beginning of, of this interview. And um, if I can do that, I want to be able to understand what that means about the competition within the pneumococcus and how vaccination specifically affects the population dynamics. So can we predict which, which strains are going to replace the vaccine type strains? But at bare minimum, I, I hope to, to understand something more about how, how uh, these strains compete with each other. For context, when they're making vaccines, they're intended to elicit a different sort of immune response, depending on what you're trying to target. And so that means like the type of vaccine we're making is, is impacting Nicola's populations. And so if vaccines change, her entire model is going to change too, which is really interesting. That's so interesting. There could be whole new vaccines based around this data. Yeah, I think that's kind of the idea. I'm not sure if I will be successful in that. Maybe it might be one step towards someone else being successful in that. And what do your future plans look like? Way past this. That's got to be, yeah, that's got to be intimidating. It's hard for me right now to see past finishing my PhD. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure yet if I want to pursue a career with a public health agency or take on a postdoctoral work or, or what, or just go into industry to do data analysis. No, not sure. I think there's, there's options, which is nice, but yeah. Yeah, I know for us, like a lot of the questions are like, what do we want outside of our academic life? work-life balance, a family, 
you're kind of older by the time you finish a PhD. So that those are big questions that you're like, oh, I guess I'll think about that later. Yeah, exactly. I learned so much about your field of work. So we're going to finish the interview with some rapid fire questions. You have one sentence to answer these. So, oh my God, it's going to be amazing. What is your biggest success so far? I was pretty happy with the fact that our vaccination work made it through the ranks of the public health officials and I believe actually influenced policy here in BC. What is your biggest failure? You know, I could honestly say that same project was a bit of a failure in the sense that I really let public response get to me and kind of affect how I felt about the work. It was the first time we've had or I've had so much media attention about something that I was kind of a lead researcher on. And, um, you know, it's a touchy topic. And, and so there was a lot of negative responses. And I really let that get to me. Oh, my God, I can only imagine. Well, it's hard because, you know, we did an analysis that we believed was careful. And I, it's not like I changed the results based on how on my personal biases or anything. So it's really hard for people to come up with come back to you with like, this is how I think the world works. So you're wrong. <laughs> I know it's it's really hard to be to reject non-logic of people being like, you just suck. You're like, ah, oh, or like, I think you're killing me. I'm like, oh, okay. I really wasn't planning on that. <laughs> yeah. What has been the biggest surprise for you in research so far? For my field in particular, I it's been surprising to me how the math is hardly ever the the hard part. There's a lot you can do in infectious disease modeling that uses really basic math tools, but the hard part is usually formulating your question and presenting your research in a way that's digestible for, say, a public health official. Cats or dogs? Bunnies? Bunnies! You have a bunny! I do have a bunny. That's adorable. What's the bunny's name? Her name is Forrest. We love a forest. Oh my God. Okay, there you go. (laughs) Nicola has a bunny, everyone. I think that's the biggest fun fact of the day. (laughs) If you had a superpower, what would it be? I have a weird compulsion of being early to everything. So is that is that kind of a superpower? (laughs) Fully a superpower. It's interesting because I have a weird compulsion to be late. So (laughs) (laughs) maybe in between would be perfect. What has your biggest hobby been in the last little while? I've been really into mountain biking for the past three, four years. It's been kind of what, what gets me through the days a lot. I, I try mountain biking. I, I, um, I bounced off one tree into another tree. Oh I no. Mean, I feel like that's kind of common. I feel like people that mountain bike are just used to that stuff. Uh, the crashes are pretty brutal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I <laughs> when, was like, when they happen, this is not for me, actually. Good for you. Yeah. Well, it was great chatting with you, Nicola, and thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing to hear about this side of something I really didn't know anything about. Yeah, thank you so much for having me and chatting with me. (laughs) 